You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Hey, Mountain Bike Radio listeners, this is Ben. I'm just cutting in quick with a little explanation of the advertisement that you're going to hear shortly. Don't worry, it's not long, but it's from Epic Rides. And if you're a fan of Mountain Bike Radio for any length of time, you know that I'm a big fan of Epic Rides. I've done their races, and they're doing really cool stuff. That whole gang over there is great to work with, and uh, I really appreciate their support. So I would appreciate if you head over to EpicRides.com and even send them an email. You can send them an email to info at EpicRides.com and just send them a thank you for supporting Mountain Bike Radio because it's allowing us to do even more cool stuff, keep the good things rolling, and uh, it's awesome. So here's a quick message, and Mark interviews Jeremiah Bishop, and it's good. So thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm Todd Wells, a SRAM, TLD, and Cliff Bar-sponsored pro mountain biker and 2016 Epic Rides Off-Road Series Men's Champion. I'm stoked for the 2017 season of racing and parting at the Whiskey Off-Road, Grand Junction Off-Road, and Carson City Off-Road races. All three of those offer big rides, world-class trail systems, and they're right out the door from downtown. Join me and thousands of others for a weekend of bikes, free live music, and plenty of bike industry shenanigans. Epic Rides events are known to fill up early. Get more info and register today at epicrides.com. Now enjoy the podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to the last aid station on Mountain Bike Radio. This is Mark. You know, when you talk about USA mountain biking royalty or legends. You talk about your Ned Overend. You talk about Todd Wells, John Tomac, Tinker Juarez, guys that have been through um, the growth of the sport and are still racing near the top. You also got to add to that list, Jeremiah Bishop. Jeremiah has been at the top of the sport for nearly 20 years. And honestly, His career, if you look for the definition of evolution of a professional career, you've got to look at Jeremiah's going from short track and traditional cross country, racing internationally, World Cups, Pan Am Games, where he gold medaled, all the way through to becoming the guy in North America to beat in solo stage racing off-road. And now he's kind of become this duo guy um, racing the team international duo stage races um, across Europe and Africa on likely, arguably, the top team in the world, Topeak Ergon. I got a chance to catch up with him. Now, I had actually uh, interviewed Jeremiah nearly three years ago when he was just getting his feet wet with Topeak Ergon and racing those international format duo stage races. He's really come into his own and now knows his place and really likes where he's at professionally. Um, He's a successful athlete, obviously, but also is a very successful coach, one that is sought out for his opinions on how to train for these type of events, as well as many others. We got a chance to talk about his career, where he's at, what he's looking forward to, as well as actually talk about some training things um, from a racer's perspective, as well as from a coach's perspective. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did 
talking to Jeremiah. Um, really insightful. Um, we talk a lot about racing in Europe and racing internationally in South Africa. Um, what it's like to be in part of one of those very well funded and supported teams that are out there doing these kind of races, as well as what the future holds for Jeremiah as the season rolls on. And literally when we did this interview, Mr. World Traveler Jeremiah Bishop was just hours away from putting himself on a plane headed off to some preseason racing in South Africa. So here's my interview with Topeak Ergon professional cyclist and USA legend, Jeremiah Bishop. So JB, Jeremiah Bishop, Mr. International Stage Race, uh, the Massanutten Monster. Uh, how are you? It's been three years since we had you on here. How you been, man? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, no problem. You know, I actually, we had you on before. It was actually the first year I had this podcast. Um, you were actually one of my first guests and went back and listened to it. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that we actually missed and didn't cover. Um, so I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Also find out lots has changed for you in the last three years. So um, lots of stuff to cover and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. You've been at the top of the North American XC MTB scene for, God, the better part of 18 or more years, 20 years. But you are really a Virginia boy at heart, and you like to come back to Virginia between a lot of the races, which seem to be um, you're racing for a European team. How, how do you get deal with the travel and the dynamics of racing overseas like that? Well, yeah, Mark, it's, uh, it's been a wild ride. You know, it's like you said, been 20 years of professional racing and, you know, dynamic of a lot of variety, a lot of different types of racing. Uh, I was on a team show here, uh, Cannondale prior to Topi Gargan. Uh, this will be my third season with Topi Gargan. Uh, it's gone great, but it, it was for sure a big shift from a team that was solely domestic focus like they'll let us go race world championships and you know if there's a world cup that it fit with the schedule of trying to you know qualify for the olympics or or something like that we weren't really well prepared for that and it was really focused on the north american market uh you'll kind of have these phases and, and team focus and yeah i mean our job at the end of the day is to win on sunday sell on monday and really um, create a lot of content for our sponsors, share the sport, and, you know, create some buzz through fast, action-packed racing. And now with uh, Team Topi Gergon, it was an opportunity to go back and do the toughest races in the world, do the biggest international races. Um, you know, the, the North American endurance scene is, is, uh, it's got vitality. It's got a lot of participants, but it's truly participant based. It's not a professional sport with a press box, the finish line and, and big prize money or TV coverage. Um, it's definitely a, a very different type of sport. It's almost like, um, you know, trail running or something like that. It's participant based. You know, there are a few star riders or, or star runners that, you know, make it or, uh, athletes that make the, the limelight and, you know, can eke out a living, but, um, yeah, the races in Europe and, and, you know, the big races that we do are, are pretty professional now. And you look at Cape Epic, it's the mountain bike tour of France. So the Cape Epic used to be, you know, a growing, really well run race, really professionally conducted race, but not, 
as big as it is now. And now it's actually getting more media than two World Cups combined. And it, um, yeah. It's almost like it used to be almost like a vacation race or a destination race. Not that it still isn't, but there is now a huge elite category. And a part of it has to do with where they place it in the calendar. But you're right. Um, the Cape Epic has grown huge over the past five years and certainly in the last three. Yeah. And, and to answer your question, to, to loop back to your question more directly, the travel um, is less frequent, but more substantial. So that's. That's the gist of it. You know, I like to do the turn and burn, which works for domestic races. You know, you can go to Whiskey 50, hop on a plane, hop back home, and, and play with the kids on Tuesday. But uh, with this particular ramp up and this particular season, it's going to be interesting because we're trying a different approach to Cape Epic. Uh, the, the stakes have gone up, and then the preparation that the top teams are putting into Cape Epic is getting more and more specialized each year. And the Bulls, Carl Platt, Urs Huber, they're already down there. They're already training and racing down there. Christoph Sauser's been down there for a week. My teammate, Christian, he's been down there for two weeks um, already. And then, uh, But we're going to have a three-week training camp where we'll have the full crew, all four of us, myself, Christian, um, Alvin, and Eric. Uh, Eric's the, the guy I partner with usually with the two-person team races. And we'll all be there for a uh, race this coming weekend, the opening round of the Marathon National Series in Gravel, uh, local stage race in Stellenbosch. Um, the fill-in days probably next week will be primarily pre-riding the Cape Epic stages. So there'll be some hard training on the Cape Epic courses. We'll probably ride five of those stages. And then we rest up for a couple days and do our final two-person team tune-up race, which will be uh, Tonko Trek, which is in the Klein Karoo or, um, you know, South Central Desert region of the interior just a few hours away. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be our chance to practice that art of this two-person team racing. And now that we have got two teams, a primary team and a backup team, so to speak, the um, cohesion between all four of us becomes increasingly important. You know, it's kind of like maybe back in the 60s when the team time trial popped up. You know, the guy from Italy and the guy from Germany and the guy from Great Britain would all just go and hammer and they would kind of sort it out and, you know, they might get a practice session in. But, you know, now to really go for a world title or try to win a Grand Tour team time trial, it's the teams that had focus on it and that had 10 sessions or, you know, a lot of experience pre-riding the course, doing reconnaissance, going over the video um yeah and just trying to get every bit of it out of it that they can and with the communication that it takes to stay close to each other and to help each other in the race um, it adds a whole other level to what we do and it's kept me entertained it's quite honestly it's, it's kind of wild it's it's pretty um challenging and i see at the cape epic anything can happen i mean it's you know dangerous chaotic race Sand, I mean, up to the rims, gravel, wind, um, just, you know, freak fog, rain will come in. Yeah. Um, crazy stuff just comes out of nowhere. And, and just when you think you have the race figured out, you know, you make one mistake and it's over. So, I mean, you look at Cave Epic, there are usually three teams that can win the race, four teams that can win the race. 
This year, there'll probably be five teams that can win the race, but something will take out each and every team until there's one team left standing. Right. That's the one thing I noticed. Um, you know, we cover the Cape Epic and every year it, it isn't necessarily comes down to a tactical race in the true sense of the word. It's more, there's always, it's who can overcome their setbacks the best or who can minimize those setbacks the best. It's not who can do the best. Um, so it's kind of, it's a interesting, um, dynamic there, there for sure. Um, going, going way back. Um, the one thing we didn't cover on that first interview we did with you a couple years ago, how did you get to the point that you're at now? Did you come up with a road background or more of a mountain bike background? I mean, you're kind of in, you're centrally located in some of the best mountain biking in North America. Were you pulled toward mountain biking to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, adventure and freedom and exploration. You know, I always love the mountains and out, outdoors. Um, road racing, you kind of get close to that, but you're never in it. But mountain biking, you feel like you're in the mountain. You're, you're in the crevice of two looming peaks somewhere deep in Colorado or high in the Alps or some mossy, fern-covered gully or gorge in West Virginia. I mean, you really get in there. and It's, it's just a wild feeling, man. It's it's It transcends athletics. You know, it's exploration and pioneer mentality and preparation. And, I mean, that's just awesome. You know, there's the thrill, but then there's also the challenge and the, you know, the discovery. And, and that really, for me, is just a whole other level that keeps me entertained with it and keeps me in it. You know, I don't know if I'd stay in it quite as long as I have if it wasn't that deep and dynamic and so much that you can get from it. Right. Uh, you know, I grew up in a troubled household, uh, you know, of the substance abuse from my mom. You know, dad wasn't around. Um, never really met him. And, um, yeah, so, you know, it was sort of this crazy, um, tumultuous time in my life and my youth where I was looking to find something to get out and, you know, chart my own path and mountain biking was it for sure. And it, it, you know, really helped me focus and find something I love. And, you know, sometimes you do that and 20 years goes by and you do all kinds of crazy cool stuff and travel the planet and, you know, reach out to people and share the sport. You know, I've done that with the Grand Fondo, a dirt road event, but it's uh, got road, you know, paved routes, but uh, just a crazy exploration. Um, but I don't set limits on myself. And I think that's one of the things that you'll find about me, Mark, is I don't, um, I don't say I am X and limit myself. I'll race an enduro race. I'll race a cross country race and stage racing. You know, it's all just about what, um, you know, what I need to learn and what I need to, uh, explore. Yeah. And, you know, through understanding of all different disciplines, you can really pull some neat things into your racing. And, and I think the ultimate, um, format is stage racing. Stage racing, you need speed to win a prologue. The prologue at Cape Epic last year was 55 minutes flat out. That's cyclocross effort. Yeah. It's pretty much pure. Um, speed coordination, you know, you slip out on a turn, that's second place instead of first. And, you know, you look to the Bulls race last year, I mean, they were damn good. They were really good to be able to pull off a win against World Cup riders like Avianchi and Manuel Fumic of Cannondale Factory Racing. I mean, these guys are like top 10 in the world. Uh, you got Nino Shooter there racing, um, this, this season. I'm trying to remember what his teammate's name was, uh, 
Strainman or something like that. Um, so they were really good at Swiss Epic, I think second, they were second to Centurion. Um, then you've got the four rider team of Centurion Vada, you know, really good riders, probably a little better on the climbing, you know, but they could pull an upset, uh, at a race like Cape Epic if they're smooth. You also have, um, you know, some other wild card riders in there. So it's going to be a, a whole other level. And, you know, it's a chance for me to bring all of the disciplines and all of the, the things I like about racing into one shooting match. That's <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. You, you talk about that, that whole idea of you just want to try doing all of it. You like the downhill, you like the enduro, you like the, all of that. Do you think that comes from, I mean, you've, your career kind of spans where that first generation of elite mountain bikers, where the UCI had finally kind of made this into a cohesive international sport, where you had guys like Tomac and Overend and um, some of those guys who did indeed do all of it. Um, do you think that's where that mentality comes from? Or do you think it's more a quest from yourself to like specifically improve things? Not personal, you know, for me, like to be able to master the sport on a lot of different levels is, is a personal goal. Right. You know, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's about keeping it entertaining and keeping it fun. And, you know, to move from one focus to the next is, is always, you know, one way to keep it interesting. You know, you change your focus and you do Leadville one year and then you do Breck Epic the next year. You know, for any amateur athlete, that gives them, you know, new opportunities to see what they can do, new challenges, and, you know, it kind of keeps it fun. And so, you know, part of that was keeping it fun early on. You know, it, uh, I guess regimented training in my 20s was not my strong point. You know, early 20s, I was really, I loved to race and I was really aggressive, uh, tenacious racer. But uh, the training itself was kind of the chore that you did to get fit for the racing, right? right? And then when I really clicked, you know, I think about the time I was on Trek Volkswagen, I did this race called Transalp. You know, my buddy, 24-hour solo, seven-time champion, Chris Etoff, was like, hey, we got to go do this race. It's crazy, you know, eight days across the Alps, goes through Germany, Switzerland, Italy, um, you know, Austria, it's just bucket list type, you know, just unbelievable scenery. Just, you can't even describe it. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll go. And, you know, we roughed it and slept on the mattress facilities and the gymnasiums and, you know, battle jet lag the first few days. And yeah, pretty much got our asses kicked, man. I mean, we just got schooled. Uh, the masters, top masters team was beating us on the third day. Um, and we managed a third on one of the stages early on, but man, uh, rude awakening. Like, yeah. you know, it's to race hard for one day, you know, but to race hard for five days, six days, flat out, just killing yourself. Not a lot of single track to recover on. You know, us two guys, we're a bunch of single track aces that just like rocks and roots and log jumps. Right. And, you know, we can, we can really save a lot of energy in that stuff. And man, there was none of that. Um, I mean, it was some, but it was like 30 second blocks of, you know, a Rudy transition and then back on a dirt road climb for an hour, yeah. uh, you know, and then, so, you know, it didn't suit either of us really all that great in the beginning, but then toward the end, you know, day six, day seven, day eight, something happened. And I mean, it was like, felt like I get bit by the spider. Like I just, 
one day was just, you know, like, I'm going to see if I can hang with the lead group and went up ahead on one of the climbs. And yeah, I was right there with the lead group. And, um, incidentally, you know, Carl Platt was leading that race with his telecom teammate, um, Karsten Bresser, who raced for, uh, you know, telecom pro road team as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, toward the end, we were actually able to, you know, figure out a strategy to win a stage and we won the final stage. And, uh, I felt stronger and stronger as the race went. It was the strangest thing ever. I came back, you know, raced in Durango, discounted my chances of, of doing a good race there, but I was 16th, uh, 14th in the short track to really good performance for me at the time. And I was like, whoa, you know, I just discovered something about myself and, you know, I, I really, fly when I push myself and, and have this, um, really hard, you know, intense, long training. And yeah, man, I started doing more and more stage races and, you know, I would race the cross country races, pro XCT races. I love them. You know, I won the national title for a short track. Uh, I won, um, the marathon national title and was very, very close, uh, with a couple second place finishes in the XC. Um, but, you know, probably the last six or eight years, I would moonlight, you know, doing these stage races and kind of, you know, sneak a Breck Epic in there or TSE or Pisgah stage race um, because they would fit in the schedule. And, yeah, I would dominate those races. You know, quite frankly, I had 12 consecutive um, stage race wins in North America uh, between American Mountain Classic in Utah, Pisgah stage race, Breck Epic and TSE. And, um, you know, when I got the call from peak Ergon, if they were interested, I'm like, hey, you know, I can't uh, say how well I'll be in the international stage races, but I know I'll be consistent, and I know I'll be um, very used to the regimen. And, yeah, I had some, some good races in the last couple of years with the team, and it's been awesome. You know, I think, um, you know, I'm still able to do a little bit of everything, which is cool. Um, and my, you know, working for the team as a support rider, uh, for the most part, the last three years has been been fun. I really like to be on the A team for one of these races, though. It's yeah. uh, a little frustrating to be up there in the front on a stage of Trans Alp. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a leash from Eric last year and said, "Hey, get up there and help the guys out and make sure to support them if they have a wheel issue." Um, but just stay out of the way, you know, so you don't piss off the other teams. And I was like, "All right, done deal." Um, you know, I'll do what I can. And uh, yeah, I was able to climb with the lead group on on one of the queen stages. And, you know, I think it, that kind of reinforced that I can do it. Um, you know, it's tough because I'm on the team with the heavy hitters, you know, right. It's like, uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron James are my teammates and I'm trying to get the, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the lead call up. It ain't happening. Yeah. Uh, it's, how, it's how, speaking of that, how are those teams set up? Obviously a lot of the emphasis, especially like, um, Albin is going to be probably one of their lead riders at, a, at probably any race he enters. Yeah. Um, but like, how, do, how do they, how do they, is it, I mean, how do they choose who partners with who under what conditions? Cause I'd imagine like there's, there's something more than just fitness there. There's dynamic and there's, you know, how, what you're good at and what your strengths and weaknesses and things like that. How do they come up with those teams? You know, it depends on the team setup. I, I think you have like the, you know, the go-to guys, you look at um, some of the other teams, it's a little bit less cut and dried. 
you know, you look at uh, the Bulls or Century and Bauta, those yeah. are the two teams that we compete against uh, very frequently. Um, they hit all the same races. And then you've got, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, Pericles and Tiago, you know, they're, you know, only two people on their team. So that's pretty straight, you know, as far as that goes. But, you know, the other teams, the riders are a little closer um, as far as ability level. So there's sort of four riders that are all pretty close in ability level and maybe two of them over, overlap. And they're the guy they switch out for the second and third. And, and lead of the you know second team will sometimes be on the A team, like you saw at Trans Out this past year. Right. Um, there was a swap in the leadership after some of the guys had an issue on day one. So um, yeah, it was it was kind of a wild race. You know, Pernsteiner, um, Herman Pernsteiner, was top ten at the Tour of Austria, and you know he was. Paired with his other young rider, Gaysmeyer, Daniel Gaysmeyer. Um, and Daniel is an incredible climber, but he's also kind of young. So the experience is what set those guys as B team. Well, they ended up being the A team for Transalp and won the race, where the old crafty veterans ended up having to do support. And so, you know, the A team, B team thing is just sort of like an on paper thing. Um, is sometimes an issue where there's injury and then, hey, you know, cut the leash. Um, Eric and I were B team and doing support for Cape Epic last year, but we ended up finishing top 10 after Christian crashed out on the sixth stage. So not a bad performance. You know, we gave up so much energy and so much time early in the race helping out that, you know, that, that made it difficult. And, and I think Eric was not quite up there at the speed level necessary to, to pull down um, you know, result, you know, higher, but, uh, I think this year's a new year and we'll see what happens. I, I think also the process of having this team training camp and these practice races will also help sort it out. And, you know, if I'm improving my, uh, proving my speed and ability, then you know, who knows, that might be a, a possibility. Right. And is this, is this the first time you guys have really had like a training camp that was outside a race where you flew in, did the race with them? Maybe had a couple days here and there, but yeah. this is where okay. This is the longest time you'll actually spend as a team unit. Yep, actually, it is, and you know, I think it's by design. I was saying to them last year, you know, Andalusia is nice, but it's you know, you, we got there, we did team photos, um, recon a couple stages, we probably did one hard day of training, and then we got to the actual um, the race itself and. Yeah, I mean, we were just racing. We were just figuring it out as we went, you know, and, and figured it out by the end of the middle of the race. But then we only had two weeks off, and then Cape Epic starts. And we were, you know, seven days of really intense racing. is It's brutal. Uh, so I think this year is a little bit smarter uh, set up on the team management side. And you know, I think it's going to pay off in that we will have force knowledge. We'll have an idea of how each other are riding. If we need to make any switches after we you know, but I'm not too worried about it either way. You know, if I'm able to help assist in the win for Cape Epic, then that's awesome too. Um, yeah, I mean, would I like to, you know, go out with a bang and win a stage? Sure. But, you know, that's not what they're there. They're hiring me for. And, you know, I know that I need to be able to be a team player first. And then I will win some races if I have my way this year. You know, I've been training really well. You know, all of the, the check boxes have been hit and, 
you know, things have been coming together nicely. Had a little bit of weather last week, but, you know, feeling good. And for uh, where I'm at in my career, you know, any good high-end performances that I have, you know, are, are a treat. It's really, uh, it's really nice to be able to hit it. And, you know, last year had some really strong performances at the team races. But this year, you know, if it's the kind of thing where I'm not on the A team, then I'm not going to destroy myself in training. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be very consistent in my training. But I'll have my eye toward national championships. You know, really want to win national marathon championships again. XC championships is in snowshoe. And I'm not going to put any, um, you know, I'm not going to call out, hey, I'm going to go win it. But, you know, don't be surprised if I'm at the front fighting for it. (laughs) You have a unique perspective. And you were talking there about, like, the the way your training has gone. But you have the unique perspective of not only being a very successful international elite racer, um, but also a pretty darn successful coach. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Um, but what is your take on things have evolved? Now we've got people with power meters on their mountain bikes and, um, you know, smart trainers and all of that. What's your perspective on training on the road versus on a mountain bike versus on a mountain bike on the road? I mean, you seem to, having followed your, you know, social media stuff, you seem to mix it up quite a bit as to what you're on. Is there a, Method to the madness, or is it whatever you feel like riding on that day? All right. Well, as a fan of Joe Friel, <laughs> you know, well, there's a lot to that, that, his sort of Ten Commandments and his sort of very unifying and simplistic philosophies of training. Uh, so I prescribe to trying to share with my clients understandable and simple advice. So I would say the biggest thing that's changed in training science and technology lately in the last 10 years, um, you know, can create paralysis by analysis. And that's when you stare at your training peaks and your quadrant analysis and your, you know, FRC, MFTP, you know, WKO4 to the point where you actually wasted about a half an hour of solid training time staring at the damn screen. You need to sometimes just get out and ride. Um, So my simplifying piece to your question about, you know, training on the road, training on the off-road, um, is that the closer you get, here's the nugget, the quotations, write this down, kids, the closer you get to an event, the more your event, the more your training should replicate the demands specific to that event and the limiters to your performance in said event. So if you're about to do a mountain bike race uh, and lead out a team rider who crashed at 30 miles an hour across the paved section to the next single track section and, you know, brave the heat and, you know, uh, deal with technical bike park terrain every 50 K. Um, then you need to be able to do road and mountain. So that's the thing about what I do is it's very special because it has road tactics, mountain bike, physical, um, needs and proprioceptive, uh, elements and balance coordination technique, but I also need to play the team role. I need to be able to pace a teammate back without dropping them off my wheel or overextending them. I need to be able to uh, position myself in the pack before a key section so I don't get, um, you know, bobbled up in, in that, you know, uh, cluster of riders, the accordion you see in Perry Roubaix. 
So it takes a little bit of everything. I do a little bit of everything. I will, however, be on the mountain bike almost exclusively for this training camp. So for the next month and a half, you'll see me. I'll be doing a road ride, but I'll be on the mountain bike. Right. That's to get really dialed in with the position, used to holding the fork crown, used to, you know, where the position of the water bottles, um, you know, everything, Q factor, all this stuff. Um, I'll know exactly where my pedals will hit the pavement. You know, it's almost like, you know, being on a crit bike versus a TT bike. You know, the, the um, yeah, you're riding on the road, but, you know, sure as hell makes a huge difference if you're anatomically adapted to where you want to perform and how you want to perform. Yeah, that's that's perfect. And if you want someone to be paralyzed by the data, hire a coach and let them be paralyzed by the data. Exactly. <laughs> uh, um, that's simplicity. You know, yeah. you, you, as a coach, you have to give simple, very direct advice. And yeah, there's a lot of um, hemming and hawing and thinking that goes on in the background of coaches. And, you know, coaches aren't always sure what they're prescribing, believe it or not. But at the end of the day, they make a call. You know, you roll with it, you make adjustments, you go back to the drawing board, you test, reassess, make another plan, and, you know, you will get closer to the mark. And, you know, I mean, I think one of my goals as a coach is to make sure my athletes have fun and learn something. And so it's a little different approach than a lot of other coach-client relationships that I'm I'm really teaching um, the athletes and trying to give them the tools so that they can really enjoy their training and get engaged in the hunt, you know, for, for their better self. So. You know, I think it's one of the fun things that um, has come of it. I really enjoy it. It's it's almost as good as winning myself if I can help someone else, you know, hit that moment and and just find the power band and you know have their have their day in the zone uh, because I know what it's like. And you know, there's so many setbacks. You're you're injured, sick, um, all kinds of challenges that make you think, you know, is this worth it? You know, is this? But then when you have that day, I mean, it's just awesome i mean it's it's such a good feeling and and to share that like i said is is a thrill in itself you seem to do a lot of local and regional racing um when you're back here in the states um especially you know like all all the racing that occurs in virginia north carolina up into pennsylvania did is that a plan you use for training necessarily or is it just i just like racing so that's what i'll i'll work that into the plan because it doesn't uh, seem like a lot of your European counterparts, at least we don't, we don't know of it, but they don't, on their off days, go do a local race. Yeah, practice makes perfect, though. You know, I think for me, it's part motivation, uh, you know, to get up early, get your stuff packed, get, to get the routine dialed. Yeah, but also just like, you know, going to the races and the vibe is fun. The reason I started racing is, you know, it's fun, but it's also social at the grassroots level. And, you know, some of those are my favorite races. To be honest, Tour de Berg last year was one of the highlights of the season. You know, I had some, some good challenges early on, uh, pro road racer, Brian Lewis out there and, and had some good hard battles. Um, you know, but it was a fantastic training, uh, and just super, super fun. And, you know, I'm not elitist about which races I, I choose to go do. Um, you know, which might be, it might have been a fault at some point in my career when I'm trying to advance up through the ranks. But, you know, I like different races and different styles of races. And, you know, we've got some fantastic stuff around here. The Michaud Series of Virginia, Off-Road Series is great. Um, the 100-Mile National Series, and now they have a Marathon Series. So, 
there's some really cool options out there and you know it's nice to nice to mix it up and, and do some local stuff to stay sharp and, and to practice i can also do it on my own terms if i'm really fit then i get to the point where i can get what i want out of the race you know i can go there and train several days ahead of the race um, or in some cases i'll ride a little bit after or ride to the race um, so there are all kinds of creative ways you know that i make it fit um, and if it doesn't fit at all i won't do it but you know i think more as i develop the coaching business you'll see me in more of the the regional races on the east coast um, just because they're where the people are where my friends are and you know that's fun having been in the um over the course of where you know marathon distance racing has really peaked it's really been your career you've watched it build become an international level type sport it's there increasing specificity in it or do you think it seems like marathon distance and longer or stage racing it was it was almost always won by the your world cup guys or the shorter distance guys the guys that are used to racing 90 minutes two hours and then we had a, a large period of time three or four years where they were all marathon specialists and ultra distance specialists winning these and now it's kind of switched back around to where the XCO guys or the Olympic distance guys are doing very well in this. Is it a specificity or is it just an, a coincidence of where those races are, where are they racing this week or this year? There's some specificity involved. The races, the stages are still fairly short. Like if there were a lot of six hour stages in a race like Trans Alp, uh, you would see a little bit more of a different rider come through. It would, it would actually, it would, it would help me out a good bit. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because Nino is going to be at Cape Epic this year um, with a very strong teammate, and and we are going to get in some longer stages. They did, you know, a podium at the um, Swiss Epic, but that's a more technical and shorter stage event. You know, and once you get up to like five and a half hours, Kuhavi is awesome. I mean, he's really, really strong. So Kuhavi and Souser, you know, Souser is, uh, he's done it all, but definitely he focuses his training on those types of events. And I think you'll find a lot of these guys, um, some can go back and forth. Wells is a very talented all around rider. Um, you know, certainly one of the best of our generation in North America. You know, you look at um, his ability to do short track and his ability to race in marathon distance events. I don't know how he does in stage races. That's that's a, a big question mark. I wish he'd uh, get out there. No offense to his uh, performance at Breck Epic last year. You know, it's definitely solid, but it's sort of bush league compared to Cape Epic and Transalp. You know, it's it's um, NASCAR versus F1. And, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm going to be at Breck Epic this year and plan to – give it a good college try. You know, we'll see what I have left in the tank. And um, I'd like to get back to the winning ways there. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, a lot of it has to do with the training. You know, you look at Nino's training style, explosive, power-based, anaerobic. Uh, I don't see him winning Cape Epic. Maybe he'll prove me wrong, but, uh, you know, I find it a lot more likely that um, the people with experience that throw down these massive 30-hour weeks like Kohavi, Souser. Um, the Bulls, you know, Urs, that guy is super tough. Yeah. A lot of people don't know who he is, but the dude, you know, he eats rocks for lunch. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be great. And Albin 
hasn't won it before. He's won everything in a damn sport. So he's pretty fired up to win Cape Epic and get it, you know, off his shoulders, so to speak. Um, but this year is going to be a special edition of Cape Epic and, and will be really neat to watch. Um, really need to watch because the Olympic gold medalist and, and arguably, I mean, he's the Usain Bolts of XC. Right. Dude, I mean, Absalom, we thought we'd never see another rider like him. And, you know, he, in his own right, we won't, but Nino, you know, as the, the Red Bull era of XC started, firmly grabbed the reins, um, and has been unbelievable, uh, in his ability to, to specialize there. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, to see him do the race and the Canada boys will be back. Uh, the Bulls will have four riders. You know, it's going to be wild. We're going to have the world champion racing. Uh, Tiago. It's three o'clock. And it's three o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's wild, man. It's, it's really, uh, it's really going to be exciting from another, um, perspective. You know, it's going to also be just a, a real mix up. And I think the year after the Olympics, Cape Epic, if you look at it historically, is always just chock full of people who have been really hoping to do it. But, you know, they've got the Olympics and the team wants them to do the World Cup, this, that, the other thing. But this is their chance. So, you know, it's going to be about the hardest one ever. Yeah. I, I don't know of any other race that all of the marathon or stage race specialty teams, factory teams, push more towards than that race a whole year. Um, there are a few teams that kind of compete with Topi Kirkon at that same level, whether it's Century of Odd or um, Team Bulls. But they're all, all of you guys are very small teams. But we talk about like the amount of support that's given to you for that race. What does that support consist of for a race like Cape Epic? Like who else are you traveling with besides your team? Yeah, we have an entourage for sure. You know, last year we had one-to-one rider to staff ratio. If you don't include the cooks, um, you know, it, it's pretty wild because last year we had two people on uh, kitchen duty because we have these RVs. Um, we have two swaniers, two mechanics. Um, well, let me, let me back up here. So we had Paul Peter, who's our primary mechanic. We had the chef and his assistant. Then we had, um, team manager David Padfield. Um, and then we had another swan year, two swan years, uh, if you include Torsten. Uh, and Craig. So, and then Sally, she raced, uh, with a guest rider. Um, yeah, so I think we had seven staff persons there. We had a refrigerator truck for our food for the chef because we weren't eating any of the food, just, you know, as a safety precaution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so we've got these RVs, you know, three RVs. Um, tables, tents, and the whole thing has to move every other day. And it's and it's quite a testament to the investment that we put into the race. Um, and then now we're actually having a whole separate trip to Africa just to get training on the course and get ready. So, you know, Andalusia was a standalone event that also happened to just mesh well. But now we actually have even more emphasis on Cape Epic. So, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it gives you an idea of how invested the teams are. And it comes back down to the media. You know, if there was one 
U.S. mountain bike race that was on TV, both live and with like a 45-minute special in the evening, yeah, you'd see the same focus and the same, you know, um, emphasis on that and everything else would just fall to the wayside. And so that's where our schedule is. You know, we've got some other events that we have, you know, great social media content, but very few chances to sit down in front of the TV interviewer and, you know, ride under the helicopter and, and have it be shown on uh, sports.be in the Netherlands or um, on Eurosport. And that's really what you're seeing. You're, you're just seeing, you know, as a guy uh, at a train station in Stuttgart looking up the highlights on Eurosport, you know, on the monitor and people just, you know, taking a break from their coffee to say, huh, look, these guys are riding past zebras, you know, yeah. and the Cape Epic highlights. It's yeah. uh, kind of become its own thing. So you have, you have a pretty core group of riders it really hasn't had that much change um, with, with the exception of Robert Menon retiring last year. I mean, your core group, your, your team is, is Albin Licata, um, Sally Bingham, Christian Heinick, yourself, and Eric Kleinhaus. That's it. That's the yeah. whole Topi Gergon team. That's, well, there's a lot of support behind that team. And that's, it's a really cool thing that there are, there, there is enough of an emphasis behind the sport, um, and sponsorship behind the sport that allows you guys to do it at the level you do it at. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of, that's a lot of money invested. And that's really, really cool. And, uh, glad to see you doing yeah. it. Um, you've now moved into this international duo racing, which is completely foreign. Um, to most riders in the U.S., um, I only know of a couple races that even offer that as a even an option in registration. Which almost all the stage races are emphasis is on the solo racer. Did you did it take you a while to figure out the the difference between the two and figure out the dynamic of how that racing and the tactics of that racing goes? Yeah, for sure. I thought it was going to be a little bit more like road racing, you know, where you're doing work, chasing down groups and, you know, trying to position yourself, um, you know, to control the pace, you know, and kind of do these roles that you do on the road, but it's a, it's a bit different. It's that part's more secondary and, and does come into play. And you've got to see that with a highlights video that we have on Facebook, um, where we talked about, if you look at my Facebook feed from a month ago, well, maybe three weeks ago, uh, we had a video from Transalp, and they spliced in some footage of us helping Christian chase back after his crash on stage five. Um, and then we offered up a shoe and then, you know, got them going again. They got second on the stage, which was an incredible comeback. They lost almost eight minutes. Um, so it, that was um, an example of both all in the same day. I, I call that tactical versus technical uh, assistance. So tactical assistance is, you know, one thing. It's a little bit more like what you see on the road, but technical assistance. You know, we're playing the role of the team car. There are no cars allowed, no motorcycles allowed in the course, and there's no mechanic allowed or feed allowed in the feed zone. At Cape Epics, particularly, um, yeah, it's just a unique rule. So you have to get your own stuff and fix your own bike um, or get a wheel from a backup team if you destroy a wheel. And, and that's kind of created a uh, need to, to problem solve <laughs> and sort of figure it all out. You know, the, the most important thing is that we're there as long as possible uh, for the technical aspect, um, because if we're to say, you know, blow ourselves out trying to close a 5K gap, you know, up to Salzer and Kohabi, and then Eric and I pull the pin and we just cruise in piano pace for, you know, the last hour and we're 20 minutes back and those guys have a chain, you know, 
that breaks in three places, they're screwed. Yeah. And, you know, we were trying to gain a few seconds, but we lost the whole race for them, um, you know, by doing that. So I, I'm just now figuring that all out. And I realized um, if you're there and you save energy, you can use it the next day, too. That's the other thing. And so there will be times when we close down gaps. We'll know when it's time to, to nail it and, you know, when it's time to sort of save the day. Um, and those those points come into play. And those are the frantic chase moments, um, you know, like uh, year before last, Kohavi uh, got to the front with Salzer and started attacking. And there was a deep fan section across the levee. And, I mean, just gravel up to your rims. And the Bulls, those guys got dropped. Centurion Bala got dropped. And it was me, Robert, and um, Albert and Christian. And Christian, you know, just drilled it to stay with Kohavi and Salzer. And then those guys sensed that Albin, you know, had a moment. And he was just, you know, slipped out of his pedal or something. And, you know, there was a gap. And then they really took advantage of it. And Christian, you know, hung on the back of them as just following instinct. And I was like, okay, time to go. And pretty much put into 10 minutes of my life trying to chase them back and, and bridge them back up to Christian. And, you know, got him back up to Christian and, you know, helped sow the gap and, you know, kept the kept the gap pretty low. But uh, those guys were unbeatable, Salzer and, and Kohabi that year. But, um, yeah, I mean, that was a moment when I knew I needed to dig to the maximum. Um, and so those moments come. And sometimes you're just going maximum trying to stay with the group and try to make the, the draft over the top of the hill or whatever. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting and a different style of racing. Pretty fun. You know, try to watch Cave Epic. I'll try to post a lot of videos. I also try to post some videos from Tonko Trek and to see what we learn about our form, the competition. And, and, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but there's some 60 plus stage races in, in, uh, South Africa. 60. Yeah. So put, wrap that around your, your head. That's just wild. Um, you know, it's a more developed format in, in some other areas. I think it'd be cool to have one race that's, that's a duo in North America. It'd be kind of cool because it's a, a really neat dynamic. Um, I do prefer the, the single athlete format. I think it'd be cool to have single athlete format, but your best two riders on the day count or, or some formula like that, you know. Um, where you can still have the team tactics, but you don't have the the, the leech, the tether. Right. Uh, yeah, you don't have the uh, the penalty for the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the tether is kind of a strange piece of it, but yeah. you were talking earlier about you know participatory in the United States for the endurance events versus um, overseas, where the, it's much more of an elite spectator race. Though there there's kind of gray areas on both sides. What what does the U.S. or North America need to do to create a national elite endurance calendar where you get the best of the best and you get guys training just for that calendar? Um, you know, we've got the NUE, but again, it's also very participatory. There are the top 10, top 15, top 25 that are good elite racers, but the majority of your field is not. You've had USA Cycling try to do this in the past, but never really put together a very cohesive calendar. What, what do we? What does this need? What needs to change so that we have the best of the best competing at these distances? Is it a prize purse thing? Is it a corporate backing, sponsorship type thing? What do you think? Well, you have to have a 
something that people want to watch. Right. Quite frankly, if people can, if they get into it and they dig watching, you know, the Dakar rally live because you can follow the GPS and the heart rate of the, of the drivers and, and see, you know, sections where they're flying through and, you know what I mean? You can wrap your, your, um, attention around it and, and follow it and get into it. That's the key. Because uh, everything comes from that. You know, you get enough people excited about it and have it concise and thrilling enough, then people will watch it. You, you look at um, watching Iron Man is like watching paint dry. It's a time trial. It's a time trial. You know, you're, you're basically just seeing how hard you can push and then you kind of can or you can't, right? Oh, oh great. It's in a three-hour broadcast. Two hours and forty-five minutes of it is the it's, you know the the fluff pieces, the good stories kind of thing. Right, but that's what I'm getting at is yeah. they actually do a good they do a good job of it, and if they can do it, we can do it because right. the shit you see going on on our GoPro, a Cape Epic, is mind blowing. You know, Christian hits a deck at fifty k an hour, and there's a dust cloud. The Centurion guys, you know, and and bulls. They hear about the problem up front, and they're deciding: should we attack or should we, you know, hang hang tight here? Meanwhile, the Canada guys are like, "Screw it, we're going!" And then all of a sudden, you know, the whole thing is exploding like around you, and bombshells are going off, and you know, it's it's make or break, and you know, sometimes it's the attacks in the race. Um, so it's really kind of interesting, and, and each day unfolds, and there's a winner, and very often in the races. There's a different winner each day. And that's what's cool about the Cape Epic. You know, I think um, different courses with different styles and a, you know, cohesive endurance calendar could work. Um, it would have to be like the North American, you know, international endurance series where the whiskey, you know, epic rides, three biggest NUE, the triple crown of the NUEs, you know, it'd have to be very, uh, concise it had to be very concise and it would have to come down to one huge race you know where it's it's uh you know double points and and kind of have something fun like that for it to be a series and for it to be um you know something worth following i don't know exactly but that's i'm kind of just throwing that out there yeah. um right now it's you know it's cool the way it is in a lot of ways and if we get there that's that's great we tried to get there with the cross country and um, Scott Tedder with the U.S. Cup, you know, and, and he's um, done a lot to put the energy back into having domestic points and high-level domestic races, um, and that part's been successful. Um, you know, but ultimately, you know, having the media is the key. And so you get the media, the rest of it falls into place. You know, if you've got all the TV channels fighting for rights to cover the Super Bowl, the sponsors they get in the line after you know after that happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually surprised that stuff that is available in the United States broadcast stuff like uh, Red Bull TV or whatever doesn't cover more of the endurance stuff because they, in the past they've covered the adventure racing side of things and they've cover and they do cover the World Cup and it would seem like it's a natural fit for them to cover the stuff that kind of falls in between, which is that you know hundred mile distance or. Marathon distance racing, um, maybe, and maybe in the future they will. That'd be that'd be a good thing. So, what's on what's your what's on plan for you this year? What's what's your uh, schedule? Have you figured it out? Yeah, schedule looks like uh, Tonka Track. I'll do these other um, in, 
you know, endurance warm-up races in South Africa. I'll be back here for three weeks, tune up, hit Monster Cross, fly out uh, early March for Cape Epic, the big show. Uh, knock that out of the ballpark, I hope, and, you know, can pull down the, the team win there. And then, um, yeah, I'll take a break for about a week. Um, really try to, you know, do a little bit of speed work, have fun. Physical stage race, maybe if I'm feeling, you know, like I need to go and, and do something muddy and rooty and, and awesome. Uh, but I might just go for some single day races just so I can prep better for marathon nationals. Cause that'll be the big focus after that. Uh, so the next big race I'll do will be, um, late April at Whiskey 50. They have a fat tire crit, then the big cross right. country, super cool. Um, well, it's more like a marathon, uh, short marathon, kind of like just below four hours. Marathon Nationals in Arkansas. Looking forward to that. Grand Junction would be cool. TSC, that would be awesome to go back. But, you know, really I need to find out if we're doing, if I'm doing um, Transalp. So that'll be the big question mark. If I don't do Transalp, then I'll do something like um, Mohican 100, Carson City, um, Lumberjack 100, and then Worlds is the end of July, or excuse me, end of June. Uh, so that's an option. Uh, but really, you know, going to BC bike race would be super cool. Tour de Berg. Hey, the summer is my, it's my apple. I get to, I get to play with it. You know, I get to have fun with it. Um, National XC championships. That'd be fun to hit, you know, and then of course, Breck Epic. I think, um, nailing Breck Epic would be a fun midsummer goal. Um, Pierce Hole 100, best course of the 100 mile series, um, outside of my backyard, of course, Shenandoah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that'll, that'll segue in nicely to Breck Epic and, you know, then I'll get a nice break at home and ramp up for Alpine Loop Grand Fondo. And, um, yeah, it's the, that's the early, early, uh, early start, early finish season. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, uh, world championships. It's not, even though that's kind of the distance you focus on, you're not going year, 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 you know what I mean? Every year. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very high level, very sharp, um, very sharp race. But, you know, a lot of it has to do with it being standalone on the calendar. Um, obviously, you know, racing with show air, it wasn't really an option because I'm going to go over for a weekend, be jet lagged, come back, you know, be jet lagged again. Um, so it kind of stood out on its own. I gave it a really good go when it was in Italy. Um, I did the first marathon world championships in um, Italy also in Lugano. Um, or excuse me, that's Lugano in Switzerland. Anyway, so um, then we did um, the one in Austria uh, in Badgozen. Um, yeah, so I haven't really uh, been able to put together the schedule to do it is a lot of it. You know, it's a big commitment. Yeah. You fly to Europe, and then you have to be there for a week to get over the jet lag. And, yeah, it's sort of hit and miss. You know, I think my my opportunity to do a really good race there is kind of um, coming to a close. It's I've had some really, really good um, form before it, really good form after it. This year, I was coming back from sickness in May and posted a, a pretty good result. Honestly, I was, I was pretty good with, uh, you know, Starting all the way at the back, moving from 150th up to 20th, flatting, 
dropping back down to 30th, moving back up to 24th and, and beating, you know, some of the other top riders from, you know, the Italian teams and Miguel Martinez and all these guys. So I was pretty good with it. You know, I finished strong and, you know, I got back on track after a, a really rough May. So for me, it was a, a good, uh, a good performance. Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. If I had my best day, it could be in the top five at that race, but it's, you know, maybe it's just going to be good enough knowing I, I could have done it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somewhere in those, in that pack schedule, it's going to make a, an attempt on the full pool of ring of fire. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I was talking to Aaron Chase, who is one of the content developers for Red Bull Media House in Austria. And, you know, Aaron Chase is obviously known for his trick bike riding. You know, right. backflips and jumps and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and, uh, but now he's getting into filmmaking and, you know, I was trying to convey to him the story about how the runners and the riders both have this obsession with a 71 mile ring of fire. Right. Um, it's a mass scenic trail, but it also goes around this historic valley called Fort Valley, which George Washington picked as his final stand should the British win the Battle of Yorktown and try to defeat the rebels. And, take back America um, to the Queen's, you know, domain. And, uh, you know, I think that history that they knew that that was the rockiest, most evil ridge line to try to ever bring anything with wheels over. Um, says a lot, you know, of all the places George Washington surveyed, that's the nastiest, rockiest, and most heinous place ever. Um, and I think that's like the thing that, you know, people talk about, they're like, well, it's only 71 miles. I mean, what's <laughs> until you see pictures of it or have ridden parts of it, being able to do it in, uh, under 15 or 18 hours is mind blowing, um, for 71 miles, averaging five miles an hour is that is excellent. <laughs> um, um, and then on top of that, it's, it's, it's remote enough that, um, very little support. Um, you know, it's not like there's you're wheeling past convenience stores or anything like that. No, it's not even that. It's you could have helicopter drop feeds, and it doesn't change the fact. You know, there are other areas where you can unlevel the playing field with trickery and and you know outside assistance, but nothing's going to do that. Nothing is going to tame. That I mean, it is. I cannot even use Webster's dictionary. Does not have the words in it to describe the pain in your wrists and the aching in your legs and your mind just turning on you when you get to halfway and you go, "Fuck!" It's been seven and a half hours. I'm bleeding down my shins from raking my shins on cinder blocks, and. There's some guy on foot that's an hour ahead of me in the virtual race. You know what I mean? Yeah. But my dream is to get, you know, it can be done faster on a bike than on foot. And I might be prognosticating, you know, I might be trying to tell the future here, but I think it's going to happen. I think we'll get, you know, a, a really good race with Anton Krupika um, out there in the summer or some other guy that that's um, hardcore and likes to do dumb shit. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be fun. Yeah, see if uh, the runner can go faster than the rider, or if the rider can just even finish because this rider has not. You know, I went down there with Sam Ferber, 
Sam wanted to do it in November. We got the last hour, uh, excuse me, last trail, which is about three and a half hours long. And that is. And uh, we pulled the plug, you know, but it's doable. Somewhere close to 12, um, maybe 12 and a half, 13 hours. Um, so anyway, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's sort of this, uh, this thing. This yeah. album follows me around. <laughs> I, I gotta lick it. I gotta at least finish the damn route this summer and, and be done with it because it's it's sketchy, dangerous, and extremely exhausting. Um, so, you know, that's one of my bucket list challenges. And then next year, you know, I'll do some more, um, you know, crazy, ridiculous expedition. But I'll move on to the next one, like the Virginia Mountain Bike Trail yes. or Gunna Trail or, or whatever. But um, for sure. Speaking of your thing, let's talk about. Um the event that you guys have kind of at the close of the season every year, the Alpine Loop Grand Fondo. What can you tell me about it? Let, let our listeners know about it. Yeah, I mean, the Alpine, Alpine Loop Grand Fondo is, is really one of those things that's a culmination of of trying to share the sport and trying to share some of the pain that I've endured to, to get in shape for those top races. And, you know, this route, this gravel road route, Paved and gravel road route deep into West Virginia just seems all uphill. I mean, just huge climbs, uh, seven climbs, some 11,000 feet of climbing in 107 miles. I mean, it's really just nasty. A lot of really steep stuff that if you don't have a compact on, will have a lot of great riders off there like walking. I mean, it's, it's really, really wild out there too. Um, so I mean, that, that was the gist of it. It's a training route, man. It's sharing one of my real training routes that I came up with to kick my own ass, and now it's time to kick yours. Um, so that was a real, you know, premise behind it. You know, we had a great uh, uh, friend of mine that owns um, or runs Prostate Cancer Awareness Project. Um, I also had my interest in helping develop bicycle advocacy infrastructure um, and safe routes to school here in Harrisonburg. And then we're like, hey, you know, this is a kind of cool thing for people to rally around. And now it's kind of become a rite of passage. And, you know, we've got the shorter routes. They're really popular, really fun. Uh, 100-mile um, paved route. We've got a 100K paved route, which has got two beautiful climbs in it. And then a 30-mile route. So everybody can kind of help, you know, pitch in and, and be involved in the Finish Line Festival and the sort of alpine um, country themes that we have at the finish line and the beer and, and all that stuff. But, but really the Alpine loop in itself, the namesake of the event is special because it's just evil. <laughs> As we close out, why don't you give me a list of the people that make it all possible for you to race at this level, um, your sponsors and all that stuff. Who are they? Well, first of all, I have to thank my wife, Erin, you know, she runs Always. the Alpine loop. Yep. He helps keep together everything organized with coaching and, and a lot of that I do, you know, outside of racing. Um, and of course, uh, Topi Ergon, you know, uh, it's awesome to say that it's the best team I've ever been on. I've been on a lot of teams, domestic, international, and these guys are great guys and gals. They're fantastic. They're really great people. They're unassuming, but you know, they're the best in the world at what they do. And we've got some great um, sponsors, Ergon, to make grips and saddles, keeps, keeps us comfortable all day. You know, SRAM components, Toe Peak tools and accessories. You'll find them at every shop in the world. Uh, Canyon Bikes, 
Lamar helmets, SRAM, Rock Shocks, uh, Crank Brothers pedals, SRM, and now Maxis, which is a new sponsor. Really excited about them uh, because they offer so many different types of tires and, and really just gives us a lot of choices out there. And, and yeah, super stoked. It's going to be an awesome season. Well, Jeremiah, thank you very much for coming on. Um, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's always good to catch up, see what you're doing. You offer um, a cool perspective on, you know, the international racing scene. Um, so thank you very much for coming on The Last Aid Station. Thanks, Mark. Yep. All right. Everybody take care. This is Mark from The Last Aid Station. Jeremiah Bishop, obviously a legend in American off-road racing. I don't think there's any arguing that, regardless of who's compiling that list. He is... We've seen his career evolve over the 20 plus years that he's been at the top of the sport, almost in parallel with the way the sport of off-road racing has evolved. I look forward to following Jeremiah in the 2017 season and beyond. And I really hope that it's not another three years before we have Jeremiah on the last aid station. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the last aid station. My interview with Jeremiah Bishop Look forward to bringing you more stuff in 2017. We have exciting things coming for the last aid station, both in the podcast and a few other things we have in the works and look forward to talking with you a lot in the future highlights, interviews and the like, um, as you are used to here on the last aid station podcast. So for myself, Mark and all of us that help bring the last aid station to you, thank you very much for joining us. Stay in touch at The Last Aid Station via Facebook, via Twitter. Keep those emails coming. We always appreciate the feedback and look forward to bringing you tons of racing in 2017. Take care.